Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Canadians are more interested in Remembrance Day than ever. China has come forward to say, no, relationships are not mended. We just need your pork. So send it, please. And Ivanka is not agreeing with the president on the whole whistleblower thing. Imagine what that family dinner is going to be like. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, Remembrance Day, of course, approaching this this Monday. And uh, a reminder that, of course, Bill Kelly will be doing uh, the normal uh, uh, ceremonies that we have, broadcasting the ceremonies uh, from Gore Park as we do every single year. And, of course, encourage you to be a part of that uh, throughout the morning on Monday. But interesting poll coming up from uh, coming out from Historica Canada, Canada shows that many Canadians are uh, planning to attend a Remembrance Day event this year of some sort, and the interest is increasing. We've talked about this several times. It seems in, in, in past times that, uh, uh, you know, especially post-World War II, it was a big deal, then it kind of waned a bit, and then you think of the Afghan crisis and, and all these situations with modern-day military, and it certainly has uh, put more focus on Remembrance Day. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Anthony Wilson-Smith, Historica Canada, and on the line now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So w- tell us about this poll and its results, and are you surprised? Well, first of all, no, not surprised. I'm very happily not surprised. We've been doing this for about 10 years, which is to say tracking Canadians' uh, attitudes and sort of general enthusiasm and engagement for formal events on Remembrance Day. And, you know, it was only in 2008 we last, lost the last person in uniform who lived through World War One. And, of course, you know, we're now seeing our World War II vets well into their 90s, and we've had great losses of many, and it's not that long until we, you know, we frankly probably won't have any. So you might have thought that, that interest would be diminishing because you have fewer visible faces. But to the contrary, pretty much every year, including this year, it's on the rise, and I think that's great news. So, uh, and again, I remember being a kid, and at one point, uh, Remembrance Day was a holiday, then that was taken away, and then there was a lot of discussion about whether we should be uh, putting the time into this that we that we should have. And then uh, post-9-11 and, and just modern uh, conflict in the world and such, it's, it's created a, a, a whole different awareness, hasn't it? Yeah, and you know, on the issue of uh, making it a formal holiday, in fact, about 80% of our respondents say, yeah, it should be. I have to say on that, personally, I'm kind of an agnostic. Obviously, I like the idea of honoring our veterans. My concern has always been and continues to be, if you make it a holiday and it becomes, you know, kind of another long weekend. A long weekend, yeah. Is it where people stay at the cottage? Is it a great occasion to rake leaves after all? Do you finally want to get in and clean out that garage that's been accumulating stuff over the summer? Mm. In other words, do you lose the sense of purpose that you get from the world essentially stopping dead at, you know, 11 a.m. and saying, all right, look, you know. We want two minutes silence for these people who served six years, whose friends lost their lives, who, you know, went through all this. Let's find 120 seconds or a bit more now to do that. And I like that formality. You know, you bring up a very, very valid point, Anthony. And the whole purpose, and, and I don't know, but I'm guessing, and you can certainly um, uh, help us with this, but, you, you know, the whole idea of this was to stop your busy life in your tracks, where you are, whether that's in a school, whether that's in a a place of of work, employment, what have you, with your coworkers and take that pause. If, in fact, it did turn out to be a holiday for everyone and became a long weekend per se, do you think people would do that? Well, no, I think you lose that sense of formality of this being a day like every other, but with that important distinction of the silence. You know, there's a recording which is not precisely of the end of World War One, but but he used uh, sort of soundings from sound meters around the battlefield and everything. So you get this eerie sense. You hear the guns. You hear the guns. You hear the guns, and then just suddenly you hear silence. And a few seconds later, you hear birds chirping. As as witnesses on the front lines in World War One said, was exactly the case. You know, the eeriest thing: the sounds of battle everywhere, and then and then the birds and the silence you know, where we're so used to hearing tumult and noise in our everyday lives is all the more striking and all the more reminiscent to me. Boy, that uh, you know what? I've never really thought about it from that point of view before, but I, I think that really does, uh, that does have merit. And, and, and again, drives the whole point home. 
Um, considering the world that we live in now, Anthony, and it, it's and, and I'm sure over history, I mean, this is this is nothing new, um, but but it, it appears we live in a very divisive world right now. So, what is the significance of stopping like that and looking at the person next door, the person across from you, and remembering all of this over and above the battles, the stories? The people. Yeah, a great. It's a great question, Scott. It's the enforced contemplation. It's the stopping you. You know, just saying, make the world stop for a bit here. Think about this subject at hand. And these days in a Canada where the chances are very high around, you know, big cities like Hamilton or Toronto or otherwise, that the person you're looking across at comes from another part of the world and may very well have come from a part that has seen their own country torn up through all this or looking across and seeing you know your neighbor or you know the grandparents of someone who's been through all this it becomes very personal you know it forces you to go inside of yourself in a way that a a movie or you know a documentary or something else you know may do a bit of but won't do to that same degree uh, enforced, uh, uh, sorry, what did you call that? Enforced? Enforced con- contemplation. Con- enforced contemplation. Boy, that's, that, that's a great way of putting it. Um, talk about the immigration factor here and what you just said in regard to uh, people around you may have come from other parts of the world where there may have been conflict. Does the fact that Canada has always been an immigration-heavy country and, and there are people coming here from around the world, does that, does, how does this resonate with them? Do, do they also uh, perhaps keep those of us that uh, don't remember this or haven't been a, have had to be a, have had this to be a part of their life, uh, perhaps take for granted? D- does immigration even encourage this sort of thing? Does, do you see a, a, an uptick as a result of that and people just wanting to be a part of that? Oh, you know, very much. I mean, look, we also yeah. run a kind of a citizenship testing where we invite people to take the same test that immigrants who want to become Canadian citizens have to do, and we forget, you know how hard immigrants have to work, how much they have to find about this country to pass a test where those of us who won the lottery and were born here don't have to do. It's the same principle. You know, I've done, I guess, in my day, somewhere between about 35 and 40 countries. Ours is one of the only ones, certainly one of the only advanced ones in the world where we have not seen a whole lot of fighting right on our soil. We've certainly stepped up when the time came. We've certainly paid the price in blood in two world wars and other conflicts. But we have been blessed in that. You know, I was just in Europe recently in France and Belgium, and you still, you know, there's still those reminders. Just you drive through small towns, and you know, and the site of the old battlefield is right there. You're going back mm. 50, 60, 75 years. I mean, in, within the lifetime of of people around. So it's very profound. Uh, getting back to that test, would the average Canadian pass that test? That perhaps was born here, or well, maybe second I, or third I generation? Say, I mean, Scott, so I could, but that's because I live this stuff every day. In other words, mm-hmm. I get a kind of a cheat sheet because I get to work with history all day. It's tough. Um, these are tough tests, you know. I mean, they're asking, you really, if you're becoming a Canadian citizen, it means you've passed that test. It means you have a very strong basic knowledge of our history and what have become our values over the years. And that's a nice thing to think of, you know. So getting back to Remembrance Day this time around, uh, the percentages uh, that you've got here suggest uh, Canadians who plan to attend a Remembrance Day ceremony has climbed 41%, a boost of 2% over the last year, and 14% above 2016. Why so recently? A couple of things, I guess. One is I think more attention was paid to the fact that this year was 75 years since, right. um, since D-Day. and. As you may know, I mean, we put out actually one of our Heritage Minutes on D-Day, and it did astonishingly well. It yeah, it was over very 3 good. million views in the first month alone. So very strong uh, either awareness or maybe discovery among younger people of that. Again, also tied, though, to the fact that I think people are really thinking a lot about our veterans of, of World War II now being in their 90s. The number of them who are here is vastly diminished. The number who are in a good position to be able to still tell those personal stories is going down. And, it, you know, it causes people to say, hey, this is my time to pay respect. Ten years from now, it'll still be important. But while they're here, while we can look them in the eye and say thank you, that really counts. How important is it that uh, we or anyone younger who sees someone like this, uh, and whether it's it's someone who's in the military currently or, uh, you know, a past veteran or such, that we do say thank you? 
Well, you know, we arranged, Scott, about that we have a program called the Memory Project. We put, may arrange about 2,000 visits a year, mostly in schools to kids between the ages of 14 and 17, by people who have served as recently as Afghanistan, so some of them maybe in their mid to late 30s, some on peacekeeping missions, and still a few of them in their 90s. And the fascinating thing when you put teenagers with the ones in their 90s is the first couple of minutes, you can see the teenagers kind of looking at each other saying, what on earth could I have in common with this, this older person? And then, the, you know, and then they're telling their stories of the war, and the students are more and more intense, and you can see the years falling away on the older speakers. Mm. And at the end, it's always extraordinarily moving. You'll see the kids going up to, you know, and hugging the soldiers and wow. wanting a picture taken. Remarkably moving. Mm. What about soldier to soldier, young to old? You get somebody who's, you know, in their 80s, 90s, what have you, and a younger soldier. Oh, the same thing. We've actually had them together on visits. So you'll have the 31, 32-year-old. That, there's no explanation necessary to the younger soldier. They've been through, they've been around, yeah. they have some sense of the danger, and it's immediate. It's respect. It's still comrades in arms. It's the two of them look at each other in a different way. They know they've either stepped up in the past or, you know, by signing up, indicated they're prepared to step up again. So you have a level of respect which is ingrained. You have to wonder what the older veterans think when they look into the eyes of a younger soldier. I think very often they see themselves, you know. I mean, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Title years back, we were soldiers once and young, you know. You, it's such a marking period. Everything you do for the rest of your life after you've been through a conflict like that, for better or for worse, you are shaped by that experience. Yeah. Is this a sign that Canada is just maturing, getting older? We have history? Oh, I think so. I think that, uh, I think, you know, personally as a, a gray-haired guy, meaning north of 50, I think that we, and actually I think our younger people have a stronger sense of yeah. nationhood today. I think the fact that we have so many people from around the world come here means we're, you know, the world wants to come here, and, and in return, we are more open to the world. And, you know, nobody glorifies war, but we do have reverence for those who served in it. And this is an occasion, again, to reflect on that and the role that we've played. You know, the world is a better place today because of, you know, uh, because of those who stepped up for the Allies, including all of those Canadians in World War II and all of those conflicts in which they've engaged since then. Uh, getting back to what I was saying uh, before, commenting on before about the divisiveness and such, and, and whether you have lost or have ties to Remembrance Day or uh, if it's just another day to you, what can we as Canadians learn from this? We need to think at grassroots level, because that's where things affect us the most, of how the world is still such a different place today. Not just in the bigger way, obviously by escaping the Nazis' ruling, and we, you, know, you can't even imagine how it would be through that. But, you know, we go to a lot of small communities and visit, and you'll go to them, and you'll still see, you know, where there were two, three, five, ten young men in communities of just a couple hundred people who went off to war, many of them who didn't come back. And when you see that, you understand that the world in which you live immediately, in which you get up in the morning, you go to work, and you come back at night, that's a different place than it would have been. These are all people who would have lived full lives, would have had families, their children would have played with our children, you know, they'd all be living through that. So we always need to be aware that, you know, the past is not some, you know, is not some distant place in a far off world, but, you know, really a living, breathing thing that touches us still. Um, it seems like occasions like this, uh, as sad and somber as they can be, unite us and bring us together in time, even in times when there is uh, of divisiveness. Do you think times like this get us, uh, make us look beyond who we are, beyond our silos, beyond uh, our own day-to-day lives, to have empathy for other people? Absolutely, Scott. And the thing about it is, you know, this is not a day that glorifies war. This is a commemoration, a day of remembrance, also of the horrors of war along with the, braveries of, uh, the bravery of those who mm. took part. T- you know, taking part in that, that moment as a set of contemplation, you know, enforced contemplation, you can use that to pray if you're religious, but if you're not religious at all, it's just to go inside yourself to reflect on the meaning of this, to reflect on the changes, to reflect on, you know, and to think to some extent, what if it had been me? Could I have done that? What if I was in that place? You know, because that's the mm. fundamental question one, you know, what these young people went through, you know, some of them 16, 17 years old in World War One and Two. Does this resonate with younger people? Do you have to be older to appreciate this stuff? No, very much. Very nice. When we did the D-Day Minute, to which I referred last year, we opened in New Brunswick, where the true story, the, the soldiers were located. We went into a high school 
and that was the keenest crowd of the many different showings we did. So 14 mm-hmm. to 17 years old, lined up at the mic to ask questions, had already done a lot of homework in advance. We also benefited from the fact some of them were descendants of some of those who went off to war, so there was a personal touch. Wow. But they were engaged. And part of it, again, Scott, was they're thinking, you know, so if I was two years older and that was then or this is now, mm. what would I have done? And that's when it really hits you. Anthony Wilson-Smith has been with us, Historica Canada, talking about a poll from Historica Canada. More and more becoming interested in uh, Remembrance Day ceremonies and services. Anthony, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Much, uh, very much a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. And, of course, don't forget, uh, Monday, Monday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, Bill Kelly, live from the Cenotaph at Gore Park with our annual Remembrance Day ceremonies. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. China has, we we talked about this the other day uh, on the show in regard to China lifting the ban on Canadian pork and Canadian meat products, which of course has been on, I think, for about four or five months, four months, I believe. And uh, obviously hard on Canadian farmers. I, I believe that China is the second largest market for the pork producers in this country. So big hit for them. Very similar to the canola situation. Anyway, so out of nowhere, China announces the other day that, yeah, we're lifting the ban on Canadian beef and pork. And uh, and there you go. And, you know, if you as you dig deeper into the story, you realize that uh, China's in the midst of a, uh, a swine fever epidemic and they're having to dis- uh, destroy a, a great part of their of their herds uh, because of this. And pork is also a staple of the Chinese diet. Therefore, there's a shortage of pork and they need it. They want pork. They want it bad. And Canada's got lots of it. So let's open up that uh, let's open up that gate again. And some thought, well, you know, this is even it was a you know, I remember reading a piece on the canola farmers. Well, this is good. You know, good news. At least there's some movement here. And the cynic in me said this has nothing to do with any of this. They just need pork. Um, you know, they're really excited about chatting about beef and pork, but don't want to have any comments or conversations about the two Michaels that are still being detained there. So, uh, you know, many thought that was kind of sort of a cynical stance to take. And then uh, out of the Globe and Mail, China says lifting a ban on meat products, uh, meat imports, not a sign of better relations with Canada. So there you have it. Uh, they've come out and said, no, no. You get you, you release the Huawei CFO, then we'll chat. No, we just need your pork, so open up the gate. It really signals nothing as far as an epiphany or better relations with China at this point. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and he is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Um, is this, in fact, any, is this just hardball? Is this just politics going back and forth? Or is China, uh, China-Canadian relations still the same as they were prior to this announcement? I, I think they are. I think you did a very nice summary. Um, in terms of the situation, China is an enormous uh, pork uh, consumer, uh, the largest, about half of all the pigs or hogs or whatever you want to call them, swine, on the planet Earth live in China. Uh, and they've been devastated in all 33 provinces of China with this uh, flu, uh, swine flu, which has caused them to cull, which is a very euphemism, nice euphemism for, for killing, um, huge numbers of the pigs because there is unfortunately no... Uh, antidote. Uh, you know, it's like us getting the flu. We don't kill ourselves. Don't right. understand me. But I mean, as we all know, you get the flu, you get the flu, and mm-hmm. it's, it's deadly. It's very hard on you. Um, in this instance, it's caused a desperate shortage. So the Chinese are operating purely out of uh, utilitarian uh, reasons. They need to feed their own people. There's a shortage of pork right now, and they made it very clear. I mean, I got to ad- admire them in a in a weird way for their <laughs> uh, for their. Uh, that was my next question. Are you surprised they just came right out and admitted it? Well, I think that they are doing that because they did not want Canada or the decision makers in mm. Canada or public opinion to misconstrue yeah. what they were doing and say, ah, look, China's had a change of heart. China's changing direction. They didn't want, regardless of what I think, I mean, or feel, I mean, they didn't want anyone in Canada to pick that up or to absorb that idea. 
And that's why they said nothing has changed until the CFO of Huawei, who is under house arrest in Canada, in Vancouver, until she is released. And I have made that argument talking to you in the past. This relationship will not change. The Chinese are absolutely hard line on this. It is not going to change until we release her. And I'm not, you know, getting into the, you know, ought we to release her? What can we do to release her? I'm just stating simply, the relationship is going to be in suspended animation. It's going to be frozen. It's going to be on ice until, until it's resolved. And I do believe it'll be eventually resolved politically rather than through the legal uh, channels through the courts. Um, does, Does Canada have any leverage here? Uh, in other words, well, you know, it's nice that you take in our pork, but let's be honest, you, you really don't give two rats ass about the two Michaels or anything yeah. else or the yeah. canola industry. Is there any way we can leverage any of this or will they just say, forget it, we'll just go somewhere else then? Uh, I know. I, I do believe. I do believe that we have leverage. I did not say we have enormous leverage. I did not say we have fantastic leverage. We have leverage. We uh, are a a huge agriculture producer. People don't realize it because we're so overwhelmingly urban, and most of us have never been near a farm, which is fair enough. I mean, you know, you grow up in Toronto or Ottawa, why would you go to a farm, right? Uh, people don't realize how incredibly successful our farming sector has become. I'm talking beef, I'm talking pork, I'm talking poultry. I mean, every sector, with the exception of milk, which unfortunately we've decided to shoot ourselves in the foot by uh, excluding foreign competition, so all the foreign competitors say, well, then you can't ship your milk to our countries either, Right, uh, quid for a quid pro quo, so to speak. But uh, all our other sectors are doing very, very well. We have very, very high standards. The quality control standards, the quality, the safety of the food or the beverage, whatever we're exporting, is of a very, very high quality. And people want to deal with us because of that. We're not a corrupt country, and there's many, many countries in this world where there's serious problems with corruption. We are absolutely not one of them. We're at the top of the list of uh, the clean countries. And so that means that China wants to deal with this, and they like dealing with this because, you know, there's a large, I mean, people may not realize this, but the largest single source of immigration to Canada is now and has been for a very long time Chinese people. Yeah, It's not people from the Middle East. It's not Muslim people. It's not people from India. They're number two, by the way. Uh, It's the Chinese population, uh, the Chinese people, Chinese of Chinese heritage. And so that's the second reason. And the third one is we do have a long, notwithstanding the current problems, we have a long history of good relations with China. So China's aware of all that. And so So do we have that leverage? So we have leverage, but it's going to be I think that sending over Mr. Trudeau appointing Dominic Barton was a step in the right direction. Experienced businessman, Rael from the school, I would call him of Rael politique. He's not an ideologue. He's very much a let's roll up our sleeves and see what we can do here to do business and make make a you know make a, a compromises, and uh, so I think he's the right person. He's not going to step out of line and and step into mud pies or cow pies uh, like um, Mr. McCallum did, um, and so I think that's a step in the right direction. And the the I, I'm absolutely certain behind closed doors, his opening conversation is going to be along the lines of, we both need each other. We've got something you want, and we've got you've got something we want. Mm. And I think that that's going to be what I call that leverage. I mean, that's the opportunity that we're going to use. I'm not saying that they're going to fall over right. and roll over on the floor and say, oh, okay, they're going to demand something in return, of course. Well, first off, we know what they're demanding. They want Ms. Huawei back, Ms. Uh, the woman from the CFO from Huawei. Yeah. Um, they want her back. They want her released. I mean, there's just no doubt about that. But in the larger sense, because this will long be, this will be eventually resolved, and the relationship will continue, and will continue to be a very large producer of agricultural products. China will continue to be a 1.4 billion population, the largest population on the planet Earth. They will continue to need to import food, and we are a very reliable and safe uh, source of high-quality food. So the, 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 all of the, 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 the bases for a rapprochement, uh, uh, an eventual uh, deal, are there. And now we've got to connect those dots and make it happen. 
China, very blunt, very much to the point. Uh, this is not about good relations. We just yeah. need the pork. Does this, is this further proof on how just how much we and the rest of the world are? Maybe this might be a strong a strong wording, but a fiscal slave to China. Um, I would put it a little bit differently, Scott. And I talk about this in my class uh, almost every week. This this issue. I don't mean China and, and the CFO from Huawei. It seems the that they're region. driving the bus here, though. Yeah, but we're, look, we're a small country. I mean, we like to think is we're a yeah. gigantic country geographically. We think we're really big and important otherwise. We're 38 million people. We're less than the state of California. And so what I'm trying to say is small countries and mid-sized countries like Canada or Sweden, well, I think they've got 8 million, or, you know, or Norway or Finland, we don't have a huge amount of clout. Yeah. The only other country that it can stand up to the United States that has equal or larger clout is, of course, the United States of America. But the rest of the countries, I'm not saying we have to bow down and become, you know, doormats, but I'm saying that we have to be willing to put some water in our wine because, you know, just like we want to deal with the states. Why? Because they're the largest economy in the world. Why do we want to deal with the Chinese? Because they're the second largest economy in the world. And that, to me, is the single most compelling answer to those, and I have friends of mine in conservative circles who say, let's just stop dealing with them. They're, they're bad people. They harvest organs and they do horrible things. And, and, but we live in the real world, yeah. and we cannot say we're not going to deal with one or two of the, 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 the two largest economies in the world. And that's just the reality. That doesn't mean we have to condone it or endorse it or celebrate what they do, but we've got to develop a relationship because China is going to continue to grow. I'm not one of those people who argue it's going to surpass the United States in my lifetime, at least. I don't believe it will on a, on a, on a GDP per person basis. But they're going to continue to grow. I've been teaching there every year since 1997, and the, you know, the economy just gets bigger and bigger and bigger mm -hmm. and more and more mature and sophisticated. And, and they're going to continue. They're going to, for the rest of our life, for the rest of the 21st century, it's going to be a bilateral world where there's two superpowers, China and America. And we have to deal with that. With the lifting of this ban, what does this say about China and its food security? How bad is this for China that they would have to, you know, reluctantly open up the gates to allow our product back in there, even though we still have the uh, Huawei CFO? Uh, excellent question, excellent strategic question, because it shows, uh, you know, if this had been in the days of Mao, and this actually happened where they had food shortages, desperate food shortages. I mean, they had that starvation. And rather than go to the West and admit that they were somehow failing, he would say, to hell with that, nuts to that, the door remains closed. That Those days are gone. Those days are gone. The Chinese government will not do that. They will not allow their own people to starve because of an unwillingness to acknowledge that there's something wrong in their yeah. economic system uh, or, in this instance, something wrong in the agricultural economy. So that's progress. That is progress, and it shows that, you know, when push comes to shove, they're not going to throw their own people under the bus. That is to say, they're going to turn to a Canada or another large agricultural, agricultural producer and say, look, uh, we need your food. You know, can we buy some of your food? Yeah. Well, it started with wheat way back when, didn't it? Sorry? It started with wheat way back when. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Back in the 60s when Mao was there and they had starvation in China. It was an incredibly poor country. And we were selling them massive amounts of wheat. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it started under Pierre Elliott Trudeau, I think. And I'd have to go back and check my books on that. But uh, if my point is, is, is that they're, they're much more sophisticated today. They're willing to acknowledge that they're not independent in everything. And they're willing to buy from outside as they're doing. And, and so I, I think that is progress. And I think that that's where our, when I say leverage, maybe that's a bit too strong a word, that's where our opportunity lies in resetting the relationship once we resolve the Huawei uh, a CFO. Once she, because it won't get resolved until then, but once we resolve that politically, presumably, and she's released, then we can reset the relationship. And, and again, we'll have to de deal very delicately. We're not going to be able to export military technologies to them or any sensitive technologies because the Americans will, uh, you know, 
protest very, very strongly and cut us off. So, you know, but agricultural products and fish products and lumber products and oil and gas products, there's lots of products there that we can uh, sell profitably to uh, to China without compromising national security one iota. Ian, you said something interesting earlier on, and uh, you talked about immigration from China, and yes. I, I believe you said that was the largest segment from any one place was from yes, China? Yes. has uh, been for years and years. Um, I've been teaching for 30 years, and since I was, I, I think this goes back to the 90s, I'm relying on my memory, I would say every year, every year, in every class, and I'm in the business school, I would say 20% of my students are either uh, Chinese-Canadian, meaning born in Canada to Chinese uh, parents, right. or they're Chinese uh, visa students. Right. So one-fifth of the students in my class, every year, every year, every section, without exception. And then I've looked at the immigration statistics, and the number one source of uh, immigration to Canada is from China. Uh, considering communist uh, rule, considering what we know of in the past, what is what is the what's the reasoning behind all of this immigration? Because in the old days, nobody was allowed out. So how how is that transition? What what is in it for them? Well, I mean, historically, uh, remember, China's only become very very successful since uh, Deng Xiaoping, mm. which was in nineteen starting in nineteen ninety three, which was not a long time ago. I, I keep saying to people, and it maybe makes some people uncomfortable, I say, look, Mao Zedong is not the true father of modern China. He, he bankrupted them. He caused devastation and starvation. It's Deng Xiaoping mm. who said in 1993, we made a lot of mistakes in 1998. Or he said we made some mistakes. And one was we shut down our relationship with the West through Shanghai, and he said, I'm going to fix that and have a rapprochement, a reopening with the West. And he did. And we can date the explosion of China from that, from that point. But now to answer your question, where I'm going with this, prior to 1993, China was desperately poor, unbelievably desperately poor. And we know from immigration studies and statistics around the world I mean, where do you want to leave? You want to leave from those countries where you are in the worst possible situation, where you don't have enough to feed your children. You know, you're driven by desperation. How is this good for China, though? Well, there's the, 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 the immigration has slowed down um, to, from uh, China, but I, now what you're seeing, it's the, it's the children of the successful, the ca- I, let's call it loosely the capitalist class. And there's a lot of really successful people now in China, I assure you. You see them in the big cities. I go out to restaurants every night when I'm living there because where else am I going to go, right? I've got to eat. And, uh, and you see all these middle class, well, upper middle, they're upper middle and wealthy uh, Chinese families mm. out with their children, and they're all dressed to the nines, and they're going out to very, very nice, very nice restaurants. And they want them to uh, learn English. And so a lot, that's why, I mean, the visa students coming to Canada. Are they worried where their loyalties lie, though? I mean, does it help China if they're all here? Are they hoping they go back home with that knowledge? I, that you've asked a question I truly do not know the answer to. I mean, I talk to my students, of course, but you're asking me what, what is going through the minds of the, uh, the Chinese leadership on this issue. They're not blocking them from going abroad. I mean, they're encouraging, as far as I mm. can understand, uh, government policy, I mean, they're encouraging students to go, and they're not just coming to Canada. Of course, they go to the States, they go to the U.K., they go to Australia. They have a very profound, pronounced bias for the English-speaking countries. In other words, the, the children of the um, upper middle class, and they are children of the upper middle class overwhelmingly, because remember, most of these countries, certainly Canada, we charge international student fees to foreign yeah. students. Mm-hmm. And just, just very quickly, just so out there in radio land, people aren't thinking, because I hear it all the time, we're beating up on foreign students. That's not true. The foreign student tuition fee is the true yeah. unsubsidized cost of going to university without taxpayer assistance. Yeah. In other words, when Canadian students pay 8000 that's not the true cost of going to university. It's 28000 per person. Yeah. The, the foreign students are paying the unsubsidized cost. Mm. They're paying the full freight with no subsidy whatsoever. And they have a bias towards the English-speaking countries. So Australia, New Zealand, Canada, 
U.S. and uh, U.K. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Uh, make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on what Reggie is about to speak of. Uh, looking for an update here on the whole impo- impeachment inquiry thing and uh, generally uh, this week in Trump, as we like to call it. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. Uh, let's start with uh, all of the commotion around the whistleblower. We know that this was all part of uh, uh, the impeachment, uh, the impeachment inquiry, and uh, in regard to the phone call that the president had with the president of the Ukraine and uh, quid pro quo and everything like that, and, and looking for information on Biden. We know the whole story. Uh, after all of this started, and the impeachment inquiry opened the doors, and 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 things got serious. Uh, Trump started hammering away that, you know, who's the whistleblower? We need to know who the whistleblower is. We need the whistleblower to come forward. Uh, this despite us having uh, poli-sci professors on saying that the whistleblower is irrelevant now because the information that uh, they focused on, it, there, there's now plenty of witnesses to uh, to back up what the whistleblower was talking about. So there's no need for uh, us to even know about all of this. And then oddly enough, uh, Ivanka Trump, uh, Donald Trump's daughter, in an interview pretty much comes out and says the same thing, that the whistleblower's identity is irrelevant at this time. Uh, What is this saying when the daughter of the president seems to contradict what he says? Well, I mean, look, there's a lot to unpack in that. And, you know, it starts with talking about the whistleblower's identity kind of in the first place, because there are protections in place in the United States, and they have been in place since 1912 and amended all the way through to the uh, end of the 1990s to keep whistleblowers' identities anonymous, because it prevents them from uh, facing any kind of uh, reprisal or upheaval or any kind of issue when it comes to potentially uh, losing their job or facing any kind of harassment. harassment or discrimination inside the workplace. So, I mean, the whistleblower's identity is important because uh, the protections that are in place are, are consistently being questioned by uh, the president, uh, some members of his family, and uh, Republican loyalists. Now, when we're talking about the relevance of the whistleblower, uh, you know, the president has gone on a number of different trails here. Either he's a never-Trumper or he's uh, a Democratic operative, or he or she is simply, uh, you know, lying and not telling the truth here. Uh, so it is important to remember that what the whistleblower said, they are a real person. They work in the intelligence community, and they've had uh, things that have they've said things that were corroborated. Now, the president's daughter saying that the whistleblower's identity isn't relevant kind of goes against what uh, her father is saying and what a number of Republicans are saying. But it kind of goes into the uh, Democrats' hands by saying, "Well, look, sure, their identity isn't relevant because it's not supposed to be relevant. It's supposed to be anonymous. It's the information that they're coming forward with that's relevant." Would the father and daughter not have a conversation about this before one speaks out in public? Well, I don't think that Trumps have conversations with each other outside of the sentences that they're speaking, and I don't know how much listening each other, uh, each of them actually do, because, you know, on the day today where we're hearing Ivanka Trump say that the whistleblower's identity isn't relevant, we just need to drop this, 24 hours earlier, her brother, Donald Trump Jr., was uh, in an argument on The View uh, talking about how the whistleblower's identity should absolutely be uh, put out there, and he tweeted a right-wing media outlet uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, basically fingering the name of the whistleblower. So, I mean, you have the president saying one thing, his daughter saying another, and Trump Jr. saying uh, another. The difference is Ivanka Trump is a member of the administration, is following federal policy and federal guidelines. Donald Trump Jr. Uh, is simply a rogue member of the family who does what he pleases uh, and what he thinks is going to be in the best interest of his father. Why would she even comment because it is not in the best interest of her father? Why would she just not stay mum on the issue? Well, I mean, look, she's been quiet on the issue for the last several weeks. We don't often hear from Ivanka Trump, especially when things are uh, kind of getting nasty and and uh, going a little out of control when it comes to uh, her father. She stays she stays out of the conversation, and oftentimes so too does her husband. They kind of just pipe up periodically when things are important to them. I think it was just she's in the middle of, of doing an interview with an outlet. It's kind of half an hour into the conversation. The question is lobbed at her, and instead of getting trapped down a rabbit hole, which we've seen a number of uh, Republican members of Congress do over the last couple of weeks when they start talking about the whistleblower, uh, it's simply easier to say, look, let's not talk about it. The identity is not relevant and then move on to something that they can talk about. I think that's the, uh, the, that was her attempt of 
taking the diplomatic way out of not getting trapped into some kind of cycle she didn't want to be in. Does this uh, add anything to this discussion other than raises the curiosity of people like you and me? Uh, I mean, look, there are people out there that want to know who the whistleblower is, and there are people that don't want to know who this person is. At the end of the day, if we never find out who the person is that came forward with this, uh, with this original complaint, it doesn't matter because the words that were spoken by this whistleblower have been corroborated not one, two, or three times, but upwards of a dozen times over and over again. New information and new details have been added to that original complaint. Uh, and I think that uh, this person who ultimately gave the information uh, to, uh, through the proper channels about what the president is perceived to have done on that phone call with Ukraine, uh, you know, it is interesting to us, and I think that it's going to be interesting to the American public once this moves into an open hearing and they're able to actually hear the words spoken from the people who were behind closed doors for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I'm reading this right off the Global News uh, website. U.S. President Donald Trump is blasting the media for not reporting the name of a person who has been identified in conservative circles as the whistleblower who spurred the impeachment inquiry. Yet Trump has carefully avoided using the name himself. Does he know who the whistleblower is? Well, I mean, look, the, the name of the whistleblower has been floated around right-wing media for the last couple of weeks. You know, we at Global News and most members of the media have chosen not to uh advance any kind of publication that could potentially implicate the person uh, who came forward with this information. The president understands that there are federal guidelines that are in place. Now, the, the, uh, the enforcement guidelines inside uh, the whistleblower protection is weak. It's, it's really difficult to go after anybody in a, in a legal kind of way. But I think the president ultimately understands that if he were to name somebody, if somebody close to him were to name this person, and this person were to suffer any kind of damage or irreparable harm or even worse, uh, you know, for lack of a better word here, there would be blood on the hands of the person who put that name out there. So I think the president will do what he can to rail against the news media and call us fake and tell us what we're doing is incorrect. But at the end of the day, ultimately knows that uh, there are guidelines in place and they need to be followed oftentimes when he's not even paying attention to that. It sounds like he wants the media to do his dirty work for him. Well, I mean, he would like the media to do it. He'd also, you know, like to try and get it done by somebody else. I mean, there's some transcripts that were released today about uh, some of the depositions that have been taking place on Capitol Hill. And a couple of times in these depositions, we simply see GOP leaders asking the people sitting there uh, if so-and-so is the whistleblower. Now, the names are redacted, so we don't know who they're asking about, but they're just simply trying to put this out in the public, trying to get the names uh, the, the name revealed, assuming that it's going to make any kind of difference on what's already been corroborated. So uh, we have to take from this that uh, unlike perhaps with the conversation with the president of Ukraine, he is smart enough to know he can't mention the whistleblower's name. Well, I mean, I'm not going to get into the president's... Because uh, at the end of the day, why doesn't he just mention the name? Yeah, and I mean, look, not not understanding what goes on inside the president's mind at all times, I do think that there is still an understanding that, that whistleblower, whistleblower protections are in place and were signed off on, on a bipartisan uh, uh, effort decades and decades ago and have been in that uh, place going, you know, for the last... 70 or 80 years, I, I think that the president is simply just trying to make it somebody else's bad, because again, if something bad happens, sure, President Trump said that he'd be able to stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, but if something actually does happen, that could come back to haunt him. Is this still a talking point that Americans, his base, is biting into, is following? It's like, we, you know, no matter all of what we've just said in regard to the whistleblower and how knowing of them or who they are is totally irrelevant at this point, uh, does any of the base buy that? Is, is any of this breaking down for them yet? No, I think that the base still wants to know who this person is because they simply look at this as an extension of what they perceive Democrats to have been doing since the day Donald Trump was elected in uh, simply a, an attempt and an effort to go after and bring down uh, a democratically elected president. They, they, the base of the president wants to know who this person is who was spouting this information because despite the fact, look, the president says this phone call was perfect, that he was fine, that there was no pressure campaign, he didn't ask for any investigations, that has has been debunked over and over and over again, yet the president continues to lie and say that that's not true, and his base buys into that and believes that. So they ultimately see this whistleblower as the person responsible for everything that's happening to the president right now. Uh, t talk a little bit about the appearance on The View and, and, and what does that do for the president, especially when Ivanka is saying what she is saying? 
Well, I mean, look, Donald Trump Jr. is not somebody who's going to hold his tongue when he's in a conversation with somebody, whether or not it's on The View, whether it's on a, 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 you know, a radio program, whether he's a, you know, a guest on Fox News or speaking at one of his father's rallies. The, Donald Trump Jr. says what Donald Trump Jr. Uh, wants to say, and I, I don't really think that uh, there's a lot of thought put into it. I think it's simply a way to try and defend the president, whether or not he, you know, has political ambitions of his own, whether or not he, you know, ultimately would like to be a member of the administration. Uh, you know, I think that Donald Trump Jr. has simply just done what he's done since the day his father was elected, and it was always go after the people that are going after uh, his family. And and I think that's simply what he was trying to do when he was when he was speaking publicly uh, about the whistleblower. It's just what we've come to understand Donald Trump Jr. to do. It's not as eloquent a conversation as you may have when his sister is speaking. (laughs) Uh, Headlines now, uh, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg now throwing around the idea of a 2020 Democratic run. How serious is all this? Well, I think it's a serious uh, conversation, and I think Democrats are looking at this with a bit of hesitancy right now, and I think possibly Joe Biden is looking at this with a bit of hesitancy right now, because this would be somebody who could potentially go after uh, Joe Biden. I think that there is some skepticism, though, uh, amongst Democratic voters, because A, this is just another white man in his 70s uh, who thinks that they know better than the rest of a more diverse uh, uh, kind of culture around the United States, but it's also yet another billionaire uh, entering the race right now, trying to say that, look, a billionaire can take on uh, a billionaire. And I think that this is going to be something that really could stir the pot with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who have made uh, a big part of their campaigns going after taxing and you know trying to eliminate the uh, influence that billionaires can have in the United States. Why? What's in this for Bloomberg right now? He's 77. Why does he want to do this, uh, especially when it appears that, that Biden's um, certainly has solid support? I don't know, because there are, uh, you know, recent polling done that's included the name of Michael Bloomberg puts him somewhere around 6%. So, I mean, this is in the range of, you know, somebody like uh, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar or, or Andrew Yang. So he's not polling very high. Uh, but I, you know, and especially when just, you know, within the last couple of months, he has said, you know, I want to focus on uh, gun reform. I want to focus on climate change. And I can do that better when I'm not speaking, you know, running around in a campaign. And now we have him simply saying, well, I'm the only person that can take on Donald Trump. Uh, I think that there are any number of reasons why he's trying to get into this race right now. I just don't know if those reasons are going to be enough for uh, Democratic voters in primary season to put a check mark next to his name. Uh, are, are Americans conscious of the age of some of these people? Absolutely they are. This has been one of the biggest concerns and, and complaints about the, the kind of pool of Democrats right now, especially where uh, the, you know, the top-ranking ones are, with the exception of Mayor Pete Buttigieg. You have, you know, age is an impact when it comes, and it is an issue when it comes to Bernie Sanders, when it comes to Elizabeth Warren, uh, when it comes to Joe Biden, especially since he appears to have a number of gaffes when he speaks, and people are saying that there's a, there could be a, a bit of an issue there with his age. And now we have another person in their 70s trying to come in. Look, America is changing. We have uh, take a look at the the elections that just took place, where you have Virginia very quickly becoming a more blue state. You have mm-hmm. Texas very quickly becoming a more purple state. This is not the America that it was thirty and forty years ago, and I think the Democrats are hesitant to move in a younger direction, thinking that they still know best. How has Donald Trump reacted to this? I understand the taunts have already started. Is he going to focus on Bloomberg? He is focusing on Bloomberg, but I think he's kind of using it right now as a, well, let's try and let Michael Bloomberg and Joe Biden battle this out. But, you know, he, he wasn't creative when he came up with his name. He, he, tied, he took a, an attack from Marco Rubio and, and decided to use little Michael to go after uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg. You know, at the end of the day, Michael Bloomberg's five foot eight. Donald Trump is six foot three. So he's, he's trying to use the words that he can to go after somebody. But, you know, I, I think the president could potentially be uh, worried about this. Michael Bloomberg, you know, while he had issues when it came to his leadership in New York City, uh, particularly when it came to, uh, you know, orders when uh, dealing with the police and things like stop and frisk that ultimately were impacting negatively on on minority communities. I think that there is a stronger uh, urge to go towards somebody like Michael Bloomberg if he were the nominee over someone like Donald Trump, who is just uh, unwelcomed and unliked in most major large suburban areas. All right. Getting back to the impeachment inquiry, where are we now? Um, Things start to really pick up on Monday. 
Things start to pick up next week. Today, we had a couple of White House uh, officials decide to decline uh, their subpoenas and requests to come and testify, being Mick Mulvaney uh, and a secondary White House uh, advisor. Uh, You know, that that doesn't bode well for the administration, and I think that next week we are going to start to see some fireworks uh, because we have the cameras that are going to be turned on. We have lawmakers officially asking some of the people who have been behind a closed door for the last couple of weeks answering questions, uh, taking their opportunity to, A, speak to the American public as the lawmaker, but also try to create some fireworks and put down uh, the other party when they're asking these questions. I think this is going to ultimately be the uh, best opportunity that the House has, regardless of what party they're in, to try and sway public opinion uh, as they move forward with this impeachment inquiry, hoping to have it wrapped up by U.S. Thanksgiving. We remember what happened with the Mueller report and such. How much attention is America paying to this? Well, you know, there are so many things that are happening in the United States politically right now, up to and including, you know, like the the Roger Stone testimony, uh, trial that's, that's just started up, yeah. which a year ago would have been a huge story to talk about because it fed into that Mueller report. That's kind of sidelined right now. And I think even the, the, the depositions that we've been seeing linked to this impeachment inquiry over the last couple of weeks are still not top of mind for most Americans because, look, we just had two... Uh, uh, transcripts released from depositions last week, and each of them are, you know, between 350 and 500 pages. The the average American doesn't have uh, the time or the understanding to go through all of this, so I think it's a lot of wordplay. It's a lot of uh, legal mumbo-jumbo that the American public is being forced to kind of sift through and read through headlines, and I think that next week, once the camera turns on and answers have to be more succinct and more uh, geared towards what's being asked of them, and, you know, it's Gives an, it gives the American uh, public an opportunity to understand it. I think that's going to be when Americans start to actually pay attention to what's going on, not simply reading the, the, the leaks and drips and drabs that come from these you know, really confidential rooms. I'm watching some of the news coverage from uh, the rallies that have gone on in the past couple of days and such, and I saw the, t-shirt, the, the T-shirts that say, read the transcript. Uh, it's amazing. I'm seeing all of these people in shirts saying, read a transcript, which they probably have never read. Well, I mean, look, not only did they not read it, but they clearly didn't read the very bottom of that White House summary that came out that says, note, this is not a transcript. They're simply wearing these T-shirts because they heard the president say the transcript shows that there was no problem. It Mm. wasn't a transcript. It was a White House summary. And we ultimately know that the ellipses inside that summary left out key bits of information that were discussed back and forth between the president and Zelensky. Fascinating. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, have a great weekend. Happy Friday. It is 1.52. It's 900. I don't know how Reggie does this. I mean, how do you keep all these balls in the air? It's impossible. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.